0: Hey there, thank you so much for joining us for a big time Talker podcast. We're everywhere now with new episodes dropping every Tuesday on Spotify, Apple iTunes, iHeartMedia, wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to subscribe and tell a friend. And thank you to our show sponsor SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau, headquartered in San Antonio, Texas, by the way. They uh, play place speakers on platforms all over the world. If you're a platform speaker or if you're a meeting planner, find one another at the robust search engine at speakermatch.com. Hey, let's talk space today with NASA shuttle commander, Eileen Collins. Now Eileen, not just a shuttle commander. Um, and I don't want to give you the big head here as you listen in on this introduction, um, an aviation pioneer for your entire career. And I'm only going to tick off a few of the highlights so we can talk, but the first woman to command uh, an American space mission, first to pilot the space shuttle, you were one of the air force first female pilots ever in the first class of women to earn pilots wings at the Vance air force base, uh, was their first female uh, flight instructor. Also one of the first women admitted to the air forces uh, pilot program at Edwards air force base. So you've done some stuff, Eileen.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, thanks for having me on your show. It's great to talk about uh, flying and uh, the space program opportunities for women, as well as men. And uh, as you know, I wrote a book about my career and all the things that I've done. And the the book is called Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. But I want to say that it's, the book is for men also, because it talks about, you know, the history of uh, aviation and space. And it also, for young people talks about opportunities for the future and uh, things that the exciting things that they can do.
0: Through the glass ceiling to the stars, the story of the first American woman to command a space mission available at amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, wherever you pick up great books, it's there. Eileen, NASA had such confidence in your skills as a pilot that you were given the job to command the first shuttle mission after the Columbia disaster. Um, and everything had been shut down for a couple of years. Take me back and and sort of peel the layers of the onion away to what it was like inside NASA when that happened with Columbia.
1: Well, obviously, it was a very sad time, and it was also a shocking time. No one had expected an accident. This particular mission uh, was STS-107. It was a space lab mission. It had seven astronauts on board Uh, they had launched in the middle of January this was 2003 and they had been up in space for two weeks a totally uh, perfect mission in fact everything was going so well that most people didn't even know there was a space shuttle uh, up in space right but they had their accident on the way back home and it was a shock to all of us it happened on a Saturday morning And my crew was only five weeks from launch when the accident happened. So we immediately went from training mode into uh, accident investigation mode. And my mission delayed two and a half years. And it wasn't until we could identify what caused the accident, which by the way, was a hole in the wing, was a hole in the heat shield. So that wing uh, broke off the space shuttle as it was returning home. And the space shuttle uh, tumbled out of control. And the cause of the accident was the fact that a piece of debris hit the wing on launch and no one knew about it uh, until we came home and and the accident happened. So it took two and a half years to fly again. So, you know, he asked me uh, what was it like inside NASA. Um, Fortunately, we had a contingency action plan, which uh, allowed us to go through step by step by step and do the things that needed to be done to identify the cause and get the shuttle flying again. My crew changed, our mission changed. Um, I was asked to stay on as the commander, which I'm very thankful for. It was a huge challenge. I wanted to be the commander of the next flight. <clears throat> um, we uh, launched uh, over 5,000 uh, pounds of you know, experiments and logistics to the space station, which had not been visited by a shuttle in two and a half years. And we got the program going again. So it was a real honor for me to be the commander of that flight. You know a lot of I could I have actually have a whole speech on this, <laughs> of the problems that we had and how we solved them along the way, and and in the end the uh, country decided that we would fly the shuttle until the space station was completely built, and then the shuttle would be retired and replaced by a safer, smaller, and I want to say more economically efficient launch vehicle, which is what we're flying today in the SpaceX uh, Falcon Nine and Dragon capsule.
0: Were you? When this was happening were you um angry were you scared that you were going to fly were you were you sad because you were close to some of those astronauts what emotionally what was happening inside Eileen Collins
1: So so it was really interesting that I was never angry and I was never scared I would say the emotion I'm I mean, seriously uh it, you may think I'm just saying that but it's funny how like you think you might have certain emotions if something happens, but then until it does happen, <clears throat> you really you really don't know. And I actually learned a lot more about myself. I would say shock was, was what I felt emotion-wise uh, in disbelief. I, I kept saying, am I in a dream? This can't possibly really be happening. Uh, I mean, sometimes you think, well, something's wrong. Maybe there's going to be an accident, but there was actually nothing wrong with this mission that we knew about. So it came, it's, you know, like a car accident out of nowhere. It it really is a shock. And you go through a period of disbelief and it's, it takes hours, days, and sometimes, you know, weeks and months for it to set in. And the other thing that happened to me, I'd say, was focus. I became extremely zoned in and focused on this accident and, and the next mission that was going to fly. My crew was out helping the uh, families. I had two of my crew members were uh, family uh i want to say uh, we call them, there's there's a name for it at nasa it's called a keiko but it's a a uh family member who assists a another family member in the event of an accident, and so my crew was off doing that and it was really uh i was kind of on my own uh, trying to figure out you know what is the best place for me as the commander of the next mission so i I sort of set i became very focused and I set for myself um you know, really with no help from, from anyone else, by the way, I had a, a lot of support from my boss in the astronaut office,
0: okay. but I
1: set a plan of, you know, what, what are we going to do to train the crew for the next mission when it eventually flies and how can I assist in the accident investigation? So I would say you, you, you there's periods of time in your life when you go through shock. And I think the most important thing is to have, have a plan ahead of time you know, for people in their everyday lives, we say, you know, have a will or, you know, you know, have have things ready to go in case something bad happens in your life. Right. And, and I think planning ahead it will really help you get through that period of shock.
0: Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars is the book from retired NASA uh, shuttle commander, Colonel Eileen Collins, our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast. Hey, I'd like to rewind back to you as a kid, Um, as I went through the book, I I was struck by how forthright you were in saying that, um, you probably were not the first kid out of your little hometown in, in New York state that one might've thought was going to grow up and be able to do all the stuff you did. You had a, a single mom. Um, your dad was a drinker. You were not necessarily knocking it out of the ballpark grades-wise in school. And yet here you are. So I, I love the inspiration that you really can, in the United States of America, do anything. And you're kind of living, breathing proof of that.
1: Yeah. And this is something that I I talked about in the book, that it. this is a great country that we live in. And it is just amazing that you can come from, you know, I want to say small town like mine, Elmira, New York, and a, a place where you know, we were... Uh, I wouldn't say that we lived in poverty, but we were probably lower middle class. My dad was, you know, in and out of rehab. My mom uh, was a very strong woman. She was a great role model for me. But when I was uh, 17 years old, she uh, she had a breakdown and she had to go away for a couple of months. And it was me and my little sister and my little brother. We lived at home and I sort of ran the family. (laughs) I cooked, I shopped, I did the dishes. Um, I, my grandmother tried to stay with us, but she was too old. She wasn't really capable of helping out. And, and it was, we were alone. And it, I just think back, I, I can't believe we made it through that period of time. I, the whole time I was worried about my mother. And I think that strengthened me, just knowing that I had gone through that period. I wanted to join the Air Force. I wanted to go away to college. And I knew with the situation with my mother... I wasn't going to be able to do that, but she eventually got better. And two years later, I was able to leave and uh, join the Air Force. And, you know, I want to say one other thing about, you know, back to your previous question, you asked about after the accident. And I'm thinking about this because of the period that the heart hardships I went through as a kid. It is so important when an accident happens for the astronauts to display leadership because people looked up to us. You know, it was the seven crew members, the seven astronauts that died. They lost their lives. They were our friends. So, people throughout the space program, and even in the media, and, you know, friends of mine outside of the space program, but in particular, the workers uh, in the space program looked up to us as astronauts for leadership. You know, how are we handling the accident? And if we came in with a lot of anger or or sadness or maybe helplessness, that did not set a good uh, impression to them to gather up their strength to go back and do their job. You know, we had to go in there as astronauts and say, this was a terrible accident that happened. These things happen. We're going to find out what it was. We're going to fix it. And we're going to fly again. And I need you. As a team member to rally around that mission. And I think that, you know, maybe the life that I grew up in, that was tough. And, you know, I lived in a tough neighborhood. I mean, we had kids that would beat on each other and I didn't like that. I I don't, I'm not that kind of person, but I think I've, I learned how to uh, deal with tough situations, maybe all the way back to when I was a kid. You have brothers or sisters. Yes. So I'm, there's four of us and I'm number two out of four. My, well, back when my mother was ill, my older brother was off in college. So uh, he wasn't there to help us out, uh, unfortunately.
0: So in the time you grew up, there were no female astronauts <laughs> and no <That's> female, right. <laughs> you know, pilots. So did you ever share this, your dreams with other people? And and if so, did they look at you like you had a horn growing out of your head? I mean, I never, they, because I it's never, pretty amazing.
1: That's right. <clears throat> never told anyone I wanted to be an astronaut. It was fourth grade when I decided that's what I was going to do. I was reading an article in a junior scholastic magazine about the Gemini astronauts and they were my heroes. I thought they were like the, just the coolest thing that could ever possibly exist, and sure. for some reason, I was like, that's what I really want to do. I could tell there were no women, and I thought well I'll, I'll grow up and be a lady astronaut and then by the time I was in high school and I realized it's not that easy. there are no women. I'm not even sure if women are qual- are eligible to do this, but that changed in nineteen seventy eight I was in college, uh, NASA started their first uh, space shuttle program class and it included six women. And that was all over the news. You just couldn't miss it. And when the first six women mission specialists were hired, that included Sally Ride, um, I was in college and I decided that's what I'm going to do. Now now it is realistic. I can apply to the program. And I noticed that there were no women pilots. All the women were mission specialists. And I thought I'm going to go the pilot route. And I had already at that point, I had already started working towards uh, applying to pilot training, which. By the way, the Air Force had just opened pilot training to women in 1976, and it was a wow. test program with, that I, w- I was part of that when I went in in 1978.
0: It's it's almost unfathomable now to think that there was a time when, when women weren't supposed to do certain jobs like that, um, and yet here we are, and as you look back on that, I mean, did you have... Uh, family that, that was uh, in military service, or where did that, that piece of it come from for you?
1: Well, my dad was in World War II, and this was way before I was born. Um, he he was in the Navy in the Pacific, and he occasionally talked about it, not very often. <clears throat> in his later years before he died, he would tell me that he wished he had stayed in for a career, um, but he he didn't because the war was over and pretty much everybody went home. Uh, but I never told anyone I wanted to be an astronaut because I knew they would say, "You can't do that. You're right. a girl." Right. So I just kept it to myself, and it was in the back of my. Of course, I had backup plans. There were many other things I wanted to do. Of course, like a kid, I want. Well, I think I'll go to Hollywood and you know be an actress, or I'll be a singer. You know, every little kid thinks about things like that. Um, I also uh, thought about being a teacher, and I loved the teaching career field, and I. Actually, did get to teach for three years, so I had other things going around in my head because the the astronaut job was not honestly a realistic thing, and I knew that as a kid, it was a dream that I had. And I, to this day, I'm I'm even shocked that I was able to do all the things that I've done.
0: You know, it is one of those kind of things. It has to be for you, Eileen, where you kind of wake up and you go, I I can't believe. You know, I'm in this place, or I'm in this room, or whatever. As a matter of fact, the book, by the way, with Eileen Collins, you got to check this book out. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's called "Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars: The Story of the First American Woman to, to Command a, a Space Mission." You rope the the reader in right away. The prologue of the book describes exactly what it was like for you the first time you flew into space, um, and you talk about you know your you're sort of, you know, position with your feet above your head and you're there for three hours and your your back hurts. And then, then you take off. And, and I wonder, did all of that training and all that prep that went into that moment really prepare you for what it was like whenever, you know, you hear three, two, one liftoff?
1: Well, yeah, all the training definitely <laughs> did prepare me for that, but you can't obviously train with the whole environment together at the same time, but we, we actually do part training. So we have motion-based simulators, fixed-based simulators. There's a centrifuge that actually the Air Force operates, and we would ride in the centrifuge to get an idea of what the, um, what the G load was going to be like, or the acceleration was going to feel like. Um, In the simulators at Johnson Space Center, uh, we were able to simulate the, uh, the sound. that sounds like you're in a a building that's burning and we were able to simulate the shaking in the simulator in fact they had to actually tone it down because it started breaking the hydraulic systems in the simulator but there's a lot of shaking that go that goes on and the other thing is the fact that you are in a pressure suit with a helmet on it's very tight you've got a g suit you're breathing off of the oxygen hose and you've got communication gear, and you can sometimes hear uh, feedback in the communication system. All of those things can be a massive distraction to you on the launch. And as a pilot and commander, you have to be focused on where, is the, where are we going? You know, What is the trajectory? Are we going in the right place? Is everything working right? We have some switches to throw and some radio calls to make, but you don't want the environment to be so overwhelming that you can't think straight. And you know that that happens sometimes uh, in our lives. So we need to, you know, the first time you get behind the wheel of a car, you're overwhelmed by, you know, where you're sitting and and you get used to that after a while. So the training is really important. I wrote the first chapter because I wanted to capture the reader uh, right from the start and let them know how it feels to launch into space. And I remember on my first mission, I did not sleep very much the first night because I kept running that launch through my head over and over and over again. And I wanted it to just like burn into my memory. So for the rest of my life, I would remember what that launch felt like. And fortunately, I flew three more times and every every launch is a little bit different. Some are day, some are night. Sometimes you go through the jet stream and there's a lot more shaking going on, Uh, the the boosters, some, they say, are poured a little bit different. So, so, these those solid rocket boosters feel different from one launch to the next, and uh, your crew is different, and your mission is different. So, uh, every every launch was a little bit different. But I'll tell you, the first one that, I, which is the one I wrote about in the book, yep. was by far the most overwhelming because it was my first time, and it was at night, and there were high winds, and we went through the jet stream. So, it was it was a pretty overwhelming experience.
0: So, you know, for the rest of us in the world, we see this all happen in movies and TV, um, you know, Gravity or Interstellar or whatever the, the film is. And the, it's always depicted in very dramatic ways. And yet the music in the background. Uh, and I'm just curious as to uh, to you as one of the few people who have actually experienced this. How does what the rest of us see in movies and TV compare to the reality of being an astronaut?
1: Well, in a movie, you need to keep people's attention, right? So it's going so fast. and there always has to be, you know something going on, something exciting, you know, keeping the audience attentive the The difference on a real space mission is you know, it, I mean, things go fast on the launch and things go fast on the rendezvous and docking. But for the most part, things are pretty quiet. And there's a period of time where you can look out the window and just look back at the earth, you're floating, you feel like, you're a an angel flying over the planet. You can stretch your arms out, put your face up against the window, so you can't even see the spacecraft around you, and you feel. Or some of the guys say, "I feel like I'm a Greek god flying over the planet," and it's those really peaceful moments that you, for the most part, are not really captured in film because uh, you can't obviously get the zero gravity feeling there. But I would say the closest you could get to that is the IMAX movies that are in many theaters around the country that they've yeah. done from the space station and from the shuttle. That, that will give you a closer feeling. And it'll also give you maybe several, you know, not just a two or three second clip, but it'll give you maybe a minute of that feeling of what it looks, what it looks like and what it feels like to look out the window and see the Earth from space and see the curvature of the Earth.
0: So I don't I don't follow these movies as much as, as like my teenage son does but there's this whole Marvel Cinematic Universe and when I told him I was going to be talking to you he brought up this character uh in in the Marvel world uh Captain Marvel. Uh it's a female uh Air Force pilot uh, named Carol Danvers who who becomes a superhero and goes into space and all that and I wonder if if you're hip to that character and if you think they based, uh, you know, the original comic book character of, of Carol Danvers on you in part.
1: Well, I love those movies. I think they're really, really wonderful. And although they stretch the imagination, which is what they're supposed to do, sure, uh, beyond reality, those kind kind of movies are very, very important. And I remember as a kid, I watched, I watched Star Trek, I watched the Buck Rogers. Reruns, <laughs> and of course today's today's characters in today's uh, uh, you know I want to say movies are are just so much better than they were back in the old days, but <clears throat> even those movies back in the old days inspired me to want to be part of space exploration, and so I am one hundred percent for the movies. I know like ones like Gravity, uh, that movie was I actually laughed through the whole thing. I thought it was really fun, but it was so far from anything that could ever possibly really happen the way it was depicted that it, that for me it, it was funny but I actually yeah. still like watching the movies I still uh, support them and and uh, I go to see all of them and I think and you, you asked about the characters I think showing strong human characters is one of the things that our movie makers do really well and nowadays they show the weaknesses in these characters and how they overcome their weakness and that's true for astronauts also you know we're all human beings we are not perfect in every way so we have you know times where we have doubts and we're like i'm not sure i can pull this thing off on the mission and you don't just live with that doubt you go act on it you know ask for more training or, you know, talk to people like, hey, I don't think we can really do this. Maybe there's another way we can do it. So I, I think those movies really teach us things about today, about humanity and, you know, how to be a strong leader and how to, you know, save the world, whatever you're going to do and overcome your own human frailties while you're while you're doing it.
0: You know, and, and in the last several years, there's been a, a big surge in these space-themed video games and these virtual reality things. Um I wonder what your thoughts are on on those interactive mediums, getting you know young people, young women, young men excited about space exploration and and joining NASA or or one of the private space companies. Do you think that's a good thing?
1: Yeah, I think it's really crucial. You know, you, there's there's a lot of uh, things to talk about in that question you just asked me. <clears throat> I I think video games are are good for young people as long as they don't do it all the time you need to kind of limit how much time, but I think that the video games really help you uh, develop yourself in many different ways. And I don't like a lot of violence and I don't like, you know, being on there. I mean, some of these are addicting. You really don't want to be doing it all day long, but I will also say that we use virtual reality in our training as astronauts. So even on my last mission, you know, we would put on the VR headset, you put on the, the, uh, the gloves and you're you're in the virtual r- world, but this world was so good that you could even you could see every serial number on every different tile on the space shuttle, and you could see every little detail on the space station. I learned more about the space station by putting on my VR headset and flying around the outside of the station, like like I'm free flying around the station, and you can go inside the station and fly around the inside. And, and on top of that, it, it's fun and it's enjoyable and you learn in a different way. And actually, it's, it's easy learning. Back when I was a kid, I had to sit down with a book or with a diagram or with a flow chart and kind of try to put myself into, you know, what is this airplane or a spacecraft really going to look like? And now we have VR. I, I think it's wonderful. So I support all this. I have two kids and I've always told my kids, too much of anything is not good for you. So you need to have the self-discipline to limit your time on, you know, whatever you're doing, whether it's video games or virtual reality. I mean, you don't want that to replace your life. You've got to live your life as a human being also, because, I mean, that's honestly the most fun part of all is that we, I mean, we never know what's going to happen tomorrow or even five seconds from now. So, you know, life is exciting. Go and enjoy it.
0: With an intense job like you have and had uh, as a shuttle commander and Air Force pilot, you just mentioned being a, a mom of two kids. How did you do the work-life balance thing with those kids? Because well, I imagine okay, you so, had to be away a lot, right?
1: It, it was a lot. I used to tell people I, I have the two best jobs in the world. I'm an I'm a astronaut and I'm a parent. And I could say mother, but I say parent, because I want to include the guys in there, too. There you um, go. Because the, all these kids, they need their dads as well as their moms. But I had helped my husband. My husband was an airline pilot, so he was gone three or four days a week. So I used to call myself a single mother half the time. But when he came home, he was great, help, helped out with the kids. Uh, we also, I tried to do daycare. It just didn't work uh, for my kids. So we had a nanny. And our nanny was Stacy. She was absolutely wonderful. She was reliable. She, uh, I talked about this in my book too, because the first nanny we hired was not reliable, and it was a big struggle. But but we got Stacy as our second nanny, and uh, she was great at disciplining the kids. And she was with us for, I'm going to say, 10 years through that height of my uh, time as an astronaut. And I still keep in touch with her. Nice. Um, so there are if if I support having children and having a career because i my mom worked when I was a kid, and she was happy working. And I think that some I mean, if you want to stay home with your kids, that's great too. But I think everybody should you know have a choice on what they want to do. and i I have so much energy because I just loved being a mom and I loved being an astronaut.
0: They are indeed two of the best jobs I think anyone can imagine. and And as a parent, I will tell you that the work-life balance thing is a struggle all the time, no matter what you do for a living. Uh, Eileen Collins, our guest. And before you jump, I've got to ask you, because this happened just this week, there was a story on, on uh, CBS News about this military base at 29 Palms and over 50 military personnel see a triangular-shaped, uh object hovering over the base and it's all lit up what are your thoughts on the possibility of ufos
1: yeah so i have an open mind i actually haven't read about that one yet or heard anything about it yet but i believe uh, people when they say that they see something like that i would i definitely i'm I'm not going to tell them that they're hallucinating because nobody's going to say they see something and if they don't see it and then everybody thinks they're crazy So I believe what they say, I think there's some kind of energy out there that we don't understand yet. Um, There's an electromagnetic spectrum, not to get too technical, but you cannot see x-rays. You can't see infrared light. You can't see gamma rays. And there's all kinds of things out there that you cannot see. And maybe I'm thinking maybe this energy is gathering in a way uh, that we don't have the technology to detect it yet. So that's where I'm sitting right now. Are we being visited from you know, from some other world by little green men. I'm not ready to say yet we are. Um, I don't close my mind to that. I try to have an open mind and I find I've, I've, I've read books about some pretty crazy things. And I, I have my doubts that people have been abducted by by aliens, but (laughs) on the other hand um, I'm, I have an open mind also. So we'll see. I I think it's good that our government has finally started an official program to track this stuff down, because we need to do that. There's something we do not understand of of that, I am sure. We do not understand what's going on with this energy that is forming in a way that we can see it. We need to find out what it is.
0: As an Air Force pilot or as a shuttle astronaut, did you ever see anything that you couldn't explain?
1: I, nope. I've never seen anything I couldn't explain. And I'm a person that looks out the window a lot. And I'm, I'm a, I've am a got my face in the window, even on commercial airliners. And it, it, there are some, sometimes when the airliner will be leaving a contrail that looks kind of strange and people will think that's a UFO um, or unidentified object and I think that's okay to to report that, and we a lot of those things can be explained. But I've never seen anything that I, uh, although in the when I was training in the space shuttle simulator, our our trainers would always put little green men in the window just to see if we were paying attention. <laughs> and, uh, th- those were, to be totally honest, those were the only I want to say uh, unidentified things that I've seen, and it was all a joke simulated.
0: I love it. Uh, little green men in the window. That's fantastic. Well, you'll have to check out the video on CBS News of this latest thing at, at 29 Palms. Uh, the book is Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, the story of the first American woman to command a space mission, uh, Colonel Eileen Collins. What do you do these days? How do you, you take up most of your time?
1: Well, I do board work, which, believe it or not, can suck up a lot of time. Um, I, At one point in time, I was on eight different boards, a lot of them uh, nonprofits, and it's where it ends up being volunteer work. So I've uh, got myself down to just a couple of boards now, and I'm uh, thinking about what I'm going to do next. I'm, I'm, I'm promoting the book, which has become a full-time job. I'm doing book signings and uh, going around the country talking about the, books in, the book and giving speeches. And once that starts slowing down, I'll think about whether or not um, I'm going to be writing a second book. So tune in.
0: <laughs> so our mutual friend, Homer Hickam, was out doing an appearance with uh, General Chuck Yeager once, and uh, Chuck Yeager leaned over to Homer with, and saw the hundreds of people out in front of him to sign their books. And he said, well, Homer, I reckon now we're in the hero business. So maybe that's what you're in, Eileen. Maybe you're in the hero business.
1: <laughs> well, I'll try to do my best. I'm not a hero, but I think that I have a good message to pass on to people of all ages. And uh, it can be a, a little bit tough sometimes. It's a little bit tiring, but it's something I believe in, and I'm I'm going to just keep doing it until I run out of steam.
0: Final question: The privatization of of space programs with with Elon Musk company and Blue Origin and all of those guys, in a general sense, good thing or a bad thing?
1: Oh, it's definitely a good thing. Uh, I believe that the United States should be the leader in space exploration and having our private companies, uh, there's so many of them now I don't have time to mention them all but that are getting private money private equity money to invest in what they're doing and I'm not promoting uh, any of this specifically but I am promoting overall, the fact that we want the United States to be a leader in space flight And the US government can't do it alone we just the, the money just isn't there from the U.S. government. We've got to get money from the private sector. So that is what will keep the United States leading. Now, we are in a space race with China. You don't hear much about it, but if you pay attention, you're gonna see uh, that's really happening. And I would like to see the United States values of, if you remember when we landed on the moon, Neil Armstrong said, we come in peace for all mankind. I'm not sure every other country has the goal of going in peace for all mankind. so I think it's important that we, the U.S. and our uh, allies take our, uh, I want to say, our, our philosophy of outer space belongs to everyone to, uh, out there, and it's for exploration. It's not for any specific country to claim as its own. So <clears throat> I, I support all of this commercial activity, and I hope it grows and grows. And I hope more people have the opportunity to go into space and have the great experience that I did of looking back at the earth from space. It, it makes you really want to take care of planet earth. When you look back and see, it, I, the, we use the word fragile, but that's really the best word and how thin the atmosphere is. And when you look the other way, all you see is darkness and you can't see any other planet like earth. You realize we got to take care of this place that we live on. And I think it's, it's good for all people uh, on the planet as, as we get more and more people into space to have that experience.
0: I love it, and I love the book, and I think it will inspire anyone who reads it. Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, Colonel Eileen Collins, thanks for being here today.
1: Well, thank you. It was great talking with you.
0: You're welcome. That's Eileen Collins, everybody, and you can pick up her book at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or wherever you pick up great books to read. I'm Burke Allen in our studios here in Washington, D.C. Thank you to SpeakerMatch.com, and thank you for listening. Now go out and make it a great day.